In Houston, Texas, between the years 1986 to 1995, young girls were coming up missing and then later found dead. Some of these girls' bodies were found in the Texas killing fields off I-45 that runs from Houston out to Galveston, our beach town. But deep in the heart of the city of Houston, bodies were also discovered, found behind dumpsters in fast food restaurants, with one signature thing in common. These girls were all the target of one specific serial killer, a serial killer who became known to us Houstonians as the tourniquet killer. And we're going to talk about it right here, right now. This is Crude Axe, Murder in an Oil Town, a murder in three acts. Act one. Who is doing this, and how do we stop him? In September 1986, I was a 10-year-old girl rounding out my tenure at Lamar Elementary in Baytown, Texas. In fifth grade, you're the oldest of the bunch, and being the oldest of the bunch comes with an air of confidence and some amount of childhood bravado, if you will. Your teen years are just within reach, And those teen years come with more freedom, and that freedom comes with new experiences. And the thoughts of those experiences are equally frightening as they are exhilarating, especially for girls. So that same month in 1986, a girl by the name of Laura Lee Tremblay, who had just turned 15 years old, was reported missing by her family members. She left school that early morning. She took her usual route, as she always did. But somehow, somewhere, along the way that day, something happened. And she never made it. She disappeared, and she wasn't heard from again. A few days later, on September 26th, 1986, a body of a murdered girl was discovered behind a local restaurant. Upon examining her body, the investigators discovered the girl sustained an injury to the back of the head. There was a knuckle impression in the back of her neck, and on the sides of her neck were two distinct pressure lines, indicating more than likely she was strangled. It didn't take long for police to put two and two together and identify the body they found behind the restaurant, and it was indeed that of Laura Lee Tremblay. Murder, brutal murder, is shocking and frightening and perplexing and leaves a lasting impression, and that impression immediately forms into a set of questions. Who did this? How and why did they do it? Will they do it again? And more importantly, how do we stop them? These questions, as they always do, initially baffle everyone, including investigators. This is 1986, Houston, Texas. We've already been going through this. Girls were coming up missing. Girls were found dead. Was Lori another name to add to the Texas Killing Fields roster? A growing list of names of girls and women whose murders have yet to be solved. Many of them 
even to this day. In the beginning, it seemed like it could be so, and police collected the evidence and they invested the case as thoroughly as they could. But unfortunately, they came up empty. That evidence was put away and stored not to be resurrected for a number of years later. Then, fast forward a few years, something similar happened. About six years later, it's April 17, 1992, a delivery person found a woman's dead body behind a Dairy Queen in the Spring Branch area of Houston. The victim was a young woman. She had a cut on her mouth and bite marks on her body, a handmade tourniquet made of a nylon rope and a piece of wood was still tightly wrapped around her neck. The body belonged to 20-year-old Maria del Carmen Estrada, a young woman who went missing while walking to work. Defensive wounds indicated she fought hard for her life, so hard, in fact, that she scratched to hell whoever did this to her. Police knew there was more than likely DNA evidence under her fingernails, so they clipped them and cross-checked the DNA evidence with the sex crimes unit, but they came up without a match. So they bagged them, and then they stored them in evidence. Police also canvassed the area where Estrada lived and worked. They asked all the people all the questions, and still they found nothing. The case went cold and likewise remained unsolved until 2003. Two years later, on August 7, 1994, a girl by the name of Diana Rubelar disappeared after walking to a grocery store just a few blocks from her house. It's reported that the girl arrived at the shop and she bought some sugar, but she left and she never made it home. Her body was eventually found in an abandoned warehouse. She was lying face up and again, like the others, had a tourniquet cinched around her neck. She, also like the others, had been sexually assaulted. She was only nine years old. Less than a year later, on July 6, 1995, 16-year-old Dana Sanchez was abducted while on her way to visit her boyfriend. She had stopped to use a payphone along the way, and then poof, she vanished and was never seen or heard from again. Dana, like the others, was reported as a missing person and remained that way until one day an anonymous call was received by KPRC assistant editor Barbara Robertson. She said the caller reported to her that there was, quote, a serial killer out there and there was a dead body out there for them to find. They gave her the body's location and also a detailed description of the victim. So reporters immediately informed the police, who followed the tip and then finally found the nude body of Dana Sanchez with a yellow rope wrapped around her neck and a toothbrush twisted in a ligature with a knot, a tourniquet, just like the other three. That crime also remained unsolved until 2003. So it's now 1996, 10 years after the murder of Laura Lee Tremblay. With the similarities in signatures, investigators recognized a pattern. 
and quickly they believed they had a serial killer on their hands. A profile was built and a picture of this particular devil was painted. And he was given a name, a moniker fitting of his crime. The decades-long killer became known to all of us Houstonians as the tourniquet killer. What colors and shapes and shades did this picture of evil depict? What does a profile lead us to know and understand, especially about this man known as the tourniquet killer? And what can we learn about serial killers in general to either find them quicker or spot them even before they start? We'll discuss that in Act 2, The Devil Inside. In a world where all of us don't agree on much, one thing we can agree on is serial killers are the epitome of evil. They are devils disguised in human form walking among us. These monsters go undetected, sometimes for years, decades even, acting out in the shadows, wreaking havoc wherever they go, wherever they live, until one day they're finally caught and brought to justice. We can all breathe a little easier until the next one pops up. When you're in the thick of the investigation, though, it seems catching them never seems to happen fast enough. So the question is, how can we speed up the process of finding and catching serial killers before they kill again, or maybe even can we spot them before they kill in the first place? One way to begin to understand them is by uncovering what all these serial killers and predators have in common. And it all starts with the brain. Gene DeSetti, professor in psychology and psychiatry at University of Chicago, examined brain scans of more than 800 incarcerated men and discovered, as we assumed, that the brains of murderers look different than other brains specifically in the area that is linked to how we processed empathy and morality. Individuals who had committed or attempted homicide had reduced gray matter in regions of the brain associated with emotional processing, behavioral control, and social cognition, the ventral and medial regions of the prefrontal cortex. More gray matter means more cells and neurons and connections to make computations and process information that includes emotional information as well. Less gray matter, of course, means it's highly underdeveloped. These types of brain scans are also seen in people with antisocial personality disorder, what's also known to many of us as psychopathy. APD is a mental disorder characterized by a total disregard of feelings of others. People who have this disorder may lie, act out violently, or break the law, and they show no remorse for their actions. What's interesting is this disorder has been diagnosed among some of the most ruthless serial killers, men like Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Dennis Rader, also known as the BTK killer, and a serial killer I've known about, but I'm learning more about, who you may or may not have heard of, a man by the name of Samuel Little. The major question that comes from this study is, could evilness and the compulsion to kill simply come from a malfunction in the brain? Well, 
from a neuroscientific perspective, it's quite possible, especially as it relates to our killer, the tourniquet killer. In the journal Imperial Bioscience Review, Inside the Mind of Serial Killers, Are They Born to Kill? by Luciano Marinelli, he states in his article, it is hypothesized that the neural networks that encode for deviant sexual fantasies follow a certain unique pattern of activation. And once a fantasy has been enacted, it becomes an autobiographical memory, which requires a specific pattern of activation, usually through the exposure to a related item. Something like a tourniquet, for example, can elicit an emotional response can activate a fantasy which in turn causes sexual arousal. The need to rape and the need to kill becomes something that they are obsessively compelled to do over and over again, and they do it in the same fashion. A serial killer's modus operandi, or MO, accounts for the type of crime they commit, the victim type, the time and place the crime occurs, the type of weapon they use, the way they gained entry into the home or how they approach or subdued the victim. It's the who, what, when, and where of the killer. The why, though, is what's called their signature. And a serial killer's signature is a psychological calling card that they leave at each crime scene. It comes from within their psyche, and it reflects a deep fantasy need that the killer has about his victims or something he needs to do. It's their thing, their mark. It's their compulsion. Most serial killers actually live in the bubble of their fantasies for many years before finally bringing these fantasies to life. These fantasies develop slowly and increase over time and may even begin in childhood with the torture of animals and then it progresses onto humans. Case in point, Jeffrey Dahmer. There's also a profound connection between childhood abuse and criminal behavior. Deeply traumatic experiences, especially during childhood, can have an even deeper impact in adult life. And the thing is, going back to the brain, trauma, both physical and emotional, can significantly alter the shape of it, diminishing gray matter in places where it's needed, like the prefrontal cortex. So the thing is, now that we know that trauma and abuse shapes the brain, the question is, can it be reshaped? They say no one is born bad, but is that true? And just as we create monsters, can we also stop in the creation? Even now, here in 2023, scientists and psychologists are still finding out answers to those questions. The brain in all its complexities continues to baffle them, baffle all of us. But what can police do? What can they do back then? It's too late for Lori, Maria, Dana, and Diana, the victims of the tourniquet killer. What could be done to make sure names weren't added to the list? Six years after the murder of Dana Sanchez in 2002, Lieutenant Danny Billingsley took charge of the Harris County Sheriff's Office Homicide Unit. After taking it over, he made it his mission to find the man known as the tourniquet killer. 
he doubled down on their efforts and a task force was formed. As part of this task force, Houston homicide detective Robert King looked through evidence and forwarded a sample of Maria Estrada's fingernail clippings to Orchid Cellmark, a DNA analysis company. From there, a DNA profile was developed and submitted to the DNA database. And finally, after many heart-wrenching years of searching for a killer in the shadows, police finally found a match. So who is this man that matched the DNA profile? The man who terrorized the Bayou City for over a decade, scaring families, young women and girls who were afraid to walk to their jobs or the local grocery store, or even to school. What they discovered in the DNA sample was a match, and the match provided a name. That name was Anthony Allen Shore. Act three, interview with a serial killer. So here's the 411 on Anthony Allen Shore the man who matched the DNA found under Maria Estrada's fingernails. Anthony Allen Shore was born in Rapid City, South Dakota. His parents, Robert and Deanna Shore, were in the military, so his family, including his two younger sisters, Laurel and Gina, moved around often until finally they left the military and they decided to make Houston, Texas their forever home. Upon being interviewed after his capture, his sister said that Anthony, even in his early years, was known for abusing young girls, and he even used his sisters as bait to lure young girls back to their house to fondle them and kiss them against their wishes. He was also violent towards his sisters and others, including animals. Supposedly, as a kid, Anthony Shore even stabbed a kitten to death, stating he did it because he didn't want it to run away, which is very Dahmer of him. We know now that if a child is cruel to animals, it's a huge red flag that there's a strong likelihood of psychopathy. And as we learned in Act 2, psychopathy isn't always a learned behavior, it's innate. So it seems that Anthony Allen Shore was indeed one of those people that was possibly born bad. Fast forward to 1983, Anthony Shore got married to a woman named Gina Lynn Worley. While they were married, they had two daughters, Amber and Tiffany. They divorced when the girls were young, and somehow Anthony gained full custody of his daughters. During that time, signs of financial struggle were quite evident. According to his daughters, their living conditions were deplorable. They said many times they had to share the same bath water one after the other to conserve water. Their entire house was infested with cockroaches. The girls reported they were bullied in school due to their unkempt appearances. They were picked on often and sadly because no one was taking adequate care of them. Anthony was also physically abusive to the girls, and if they cried, he would smother their faces with pillows. He would often beat them, and given his track record of sexual misconduct, it wasn't long before he started molesting his daughters. This went on for years, until Anthony Shore got remarried to a woman named Amy Lynch. Then after they tied the knot, 
he sent the girls away to live with his mother, who was in California at the time. Right when she saw the girls, she knew something was wrong, just by their appearance alone. Eventually, Tiffany broke down and shared with her the fact that her father had been raping her since she was 10 years old. Amber also said similar things happened to her. His mother reported the information to the police and they investigated him. And in 1998, Anthony Shore was convicted of child molestation. Sadly enough, he avoided a harsh conviction by asking for a plea deal and he ended up just being put on probation. Fortunately enough though, through police protocol, they were able to collect a DNA sample from him and document it in the Texas database. And this was the move that sealed Anthony Shore's fate. That DNA sample is what led to his arrest on October 24, 2003 for the murder of Maria del Carmen Estrada. Much to their surprise, during police questioning, Anthony Allen Shore confessed, not only to the murder of Maria, but also to the murders of three others, Diana Rebelar, Dana Sanchez, and Lori Lee Tremblay. After years of searching for him, investigators finally had in their grasp the man they called the tourniquet killer. During his interview with police, Anthony Allen Shore went into the details of his murders, quite casually, I may add, creepy casual, like the way we would describe a typical day at work or at school. He kicked off the interview with his discussion of 15-year-old Lori Lee Tremblay, who he admitted was his first killing back in 1986. He explained how he came to know her, that one day she approached him while he was in his van at a stoplight. She asked him for a cigarette. He obliged and in turn asked her if she needed a ride, in which she did. So she hopped in with him and he took her to school and he dropped her off. Unfortunately, that wasn't the end of their encounters. Days later, the same thing happened. She saw him in his van and he pulled over and he gave her a ride again. He said it happened again and again several times and on those rides, he began to develop a rapport with the young girl. He started to earn her trust. We now know when a pedophile does this type of thing, slowly and methodically, luring a child in to gain their trust, it's a process known as grooming. And in this case, he was indeed grooming Lori. Anthony Shore, in his sick mind, even stated to police that he and the child became involved, quote unquote, with one another, that the conversations and the rides to school developed into kissing and holding hands like boyfriend and girlfriend. On the day that he killed her, Anthony Shore told police he decided that day he wanted to take things further with her. And while she was in his clutches, he made his move. When he did, the young girl reacted and attempted to fight him off and told him no, and then threatened to tell her parents. He stated that he, in an immediate reaction, grabbed an object from the back of his van and struck her in the back of the head in a panic. The blow to the head didn't kill her. 
So he confessed he then panicked again and grabbed a rope and then choked her to death. And later that early morning, he dumped her lifeless body behind a restaurant. Anthony Allen Short then stated to police that he learned something about killing that day. He injured himself while killing young Lori and sustained a rope burn and cuts to his hands. He said if he decided that if he were to ever do it again, he wouldn't use his hands to pull a rope. He instead would use a tourniquet. After his killing of Lori Lou Tremblay, Shore explained his urge to kill lay dormant for a few years. He said it didn't awaken until several years later in 1992 when he saw Maria Estrada walking to her nanny job. He said he pulled over in his van and offered her a ride. She initially turned him down, but he circled around and saw her several times in the same sort of occasion. And after asking again and again, she finally caved, like he did with Lori. He gave her a few rides at first to develop trust. He told police she was just so pretty that he couldn't help himself. So one day he pulled behind a Dairy Queen and he made his move on her. But to his surprise, Maria resisted. The more he pushed, the more she fought back. He got rough with her, she got tough with him. He said she scratched him up pretty badly. But during their struggle, he grabbed a cord and a piece of wood from the back of his van And finally, in the end, he got the better of her. He strangled her and dumped her body out there, exposed, behind a Dairy Queen, and then he drove off without a care. It seems at this point that the psychopath was fully unleashed. Shore told them between the murders of Maria Estrada and then who would be his next victim, there was another victim that police didn't know about. So at the time of his crimes, Anthony Shore stated he worked for a telephone company and he was responsible for climbing telephone poles and repairing, connecting, and disconnecting service. He confessed while working one day, while up at the top of one of these poles, he saw through a window of a home, a young girl by the name of Selma Jansky. He said he then became fixated on the girl. He stalked her, memorized her routines and patterns until one day he decided to go after her. He strayed from his MO of picking up girls off the streets and broke into her house and waited for her to get home. When she got home, Anthony Shore with a ski mask covering his face, snatched her, tied her up with an electrical cord and then violently raped her. She fought him as hard as she could And when she did, he attempted to strangle her just like the others. But then he said that he stopped himself. He didn't kill her. And he got up and he vanished from the scene. She was his only victim to be left alive. That we know about, at least. Not long after the rape of Jansky, Shore abducted Diana Rebelar, a nine-year-old girl who was on her way to the store to buy her mother some sugar. He said he snatched her up with the intention of raping her, and to his surprise, she also fought like hell. And he knew if he were to let her go, she would, quote, ruin my life. So he killed her the same way he did the others with a tourniquet. Now his calling card, now his signature. 
He said to the police that he told himself over and over he needed to stop this. He said he was, quote, a sick, sick puppy. But still, in July 1995, Shore killed his fourth victim, Data Sanchez, who he also picked up while driving around. He found Dana at a payphone outside a convenience store. He said she seemed upset, so he accosted her and offered her a ride. She hopped in with him and they drove around and he said he flirted with her a little and she was friendly. She confided in him that she was a runaway. But in an interesting twist, she lied to him when he asked her her name. She told him that her name was Ruby. Perhaps she was starting to catch the weird vibes that he was giving off. Her gut was trying to tell her something. The pit of her intuition was crying out, telling her to run. But sadly, it was too late. Dana was already in his grasp. Anthony Shore said he pulled over into a parking lot and made his advances. She shoved him off saying she had a boyfriend, but he grabbed her and threw her in the back of the van. She too fought him and bit him, so he tied her up with tape and he killed her with a rope. A tourniquet. Just like the others, he dumped her body in a warehouse and he took off. After this murder, he said he contacted the news and informed them of the body and that there was a serial killer out there. He claimed it was because of guilt but I think it had more to do with recognition and media fame. Well, that media fame did finally come years later when Anthony Allen Shore was convicted of molesting his family members and the DNA they took from him was linked to the murder of Maria del Carmen Estrada. The scratches she inflicted on him trapped his DNA in her fingernails and it led investigators to his capture. The bravery of Maria and his own little girls saved the lives of many others who could have fallen prey to the tourniquet killer. Anthony Allen Shore was convicted of the rape and murder of Estrada, their strongest case, and he was sentenced to death on November 15, 2004. His sentence wasn't carried out until January 18, 2018. Shore's family members who testified against him in court, who stated, you should put him to death. Well, none of them attended his execution. But the families of the victims, they were there. And hopefully they have some ounce of peace knowing he's dead now, even though the pain of their own loss will always live on. And in the end, as the first dose of pentobarbital began surging through his system, Anthony Shore exclaimed the drug burned. Ooh-wee, I could feel that, he said, before slipping into unconsciousness. Those were his final words before the subsequent potassium chloride was administered to stop his heart. Anthony Allen Shore was pronounced dead 13 minutes later at 6.28 p.m. Questions remain. Did Anthony Shore commit any other rapes and murders that he didn't confess to? Are there other victims out there without any resolution? His sisters think there are. Please think that there could be. But sadly, we may never know. But what we do know now 
is there won't be any more victims, not at his hands at least. And even more importantly, what we need to remember, that our job as a collective whole, as a society, is always to remain vigilant and knowledgeable, to successfully be on the lookout for one another, keeping a watchful eye out for our most vulnerable of people, especially our kids. That's the end of this episode. This is Crudax, Murder in an Oil Town. We are produced by Amy Dunlap and Russell Dunlap, and all original music is by Two Star Symphony. They are a local group out here in Houston. You can check them out online and on social media. You can also check us out on our website at www.crudax.com for more information. And stay tuned for our next episode. There's a lot of crime out here in the oil towns. The crud, the blood, and the beer. Can't wait to tell you all about it. Till next time, folks. Bye.